Good morning. Welcome to China Takes Over the World. I am Ying Ma. In recent years, China has engaged in a series of nasty disputes with its neighbors over the islands, reefs, and rocks in the South China Sea. With us to sort out the contentious rhetoric and implications for regional security is Professor Carlisle Thayer, Director of Thayer Consultancy and Emeritus Professor at the University of New South Wales, Canberra. Professor Thayer, good morning to you. Good morning, Ingma. Uh, China and the Philippines have been engaged in a tense standoff over the Second Thomas Shoal in the Spratly Islands in the South China Sea.、Uh, the Philippines docked a World War II era ship there、uh, back in the late '90s, I believe, to mark its territory. And China is currently trying to evict the Marines on the ship by preventing them from getting reapplies. Could you maybe tell us a little bit about how this latest spat even got started? Did China one day wake up and say we're going to try to starve these Philippines? You know, soldiers on the ship until they leave. Well, I think the story goes back to 1947, and I'll keep it brief. The then Republic of China issued a map、uh, with with then 11、uh, dashed lines, which have now been reduced to two. But mainland China has added another one around Taiwan. But for Southeast Asia, nine lines, and it's been unclear ever since then. But it,、uh, what those mean? But in 2009, the People's Republic of China formally、uh, presented that map to the United Nations, and since then. Huge ambiguity. Are they claiming all the waters? Are they claiming all the land features and the waters around them? So that then, when we you take that claim, China had begun prior to 2007 maritime enforcement. That this was Chinese areas of sovereignty. The resources were、uh, sea, fishing, hydrocarbons were Chinese、uh, resources, and they were being plundered by neighboring countries. And that led to an initial dispute with the Philippines over Scarborough Shoal, much to the north. And then, more recently,、uh, Second Thomas Shoal. And as you indicated, back in 1999, the Philippines landed an LST. And back then, I was working for Pacific Command in, in Hawaii. Was writing quarterly reports, and I went back. And back then, the tables were turned. It was Philippine boats that were chasing out Chinese fishermen, ramming them, sinking them, leading to the odd fatality to assert their sovereignty. And that's when they beached the boat. But if we fast forward, China is trying to engage bilaterally with the Philippines to resolve the dispute.、Uh, the Philippines decided that process had, co- had come to a dead end, and so、uh, launched a, a submission for an arbitral tribunal、uh, in January. And then, more recently, they had to meet a deadline. So it's in that context, I think, that China is trying to put the pressure on the Philippines to one withdraw from the arbitral tribunal and engage in bilateral negotiations on. Uh, Second Thomas Shoal. Well, as you mentioned earlier, China、um, had forcibly dislodged the Philippines from Scarborough Shoal.、Um, that was in 2002, and that's also contested territory between the two countries. And、um, the U.S., which has a security treaty with the Philippines, didn't really respond in any significant way to that.、Um, And many say that this would also be the case if China were to forcibly、um, take Second Thomas Shoal from the Philippines. Do you agree with that assessment? Well, yeah, I'd make a distinction. I mean, like with Japan, we'll, we'll leave that aside. Where, where they are alliances, and the U.S. will back Japan over the Singapore's. Right. The U.S.-Philippine treaty was signed in 1951, and Philippines only made claim、mm-hmm. uh, to these island features after then.、Mm-hmm. So the United States says it is not bound.、Uh, Because the agreement wasn't amended to include territory, and, and in fact, if, if you listen to U.S. military personnel when they talk about how they might help the Philippines if something were to happen with China, you know, forcibly taking Tom, Second Thomas Shoal, they're very 
ambiguous and non-committal, right? I think some of them have said, "Well, of course, help you," but they don't—they're not going to indicate, you know, what exactly. Uh, and they're certainly not committing to any, you know, way of helping uh, using military force. Yeah, what's little known is that the United States brokered a settlement on Scarborough Shoal for the mutual withdrawal of both Chinese and Philippine ships from the shoal. And the Philippines obliged, uh, but according to information that I've received, uh, when the local negotiators uh, sent the information back to Beijing, Beijing was quite angry and insisted they stay. And so you had a situation where the Philippines left and can't return, and China (laughs) continues to squat, and poor America was standing in the middle uh, with that. Well, we'll see. The President Obama is going uh, to the Philippines uh, shortly, and uh, an agreement to enhance defense cooperation is going to step up. But, but basically, my kind of argument has been that it, 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 there's a double problem here, that if, it, if that agreement is to provide deterrence for, uh, against China, what happens if China acts and the U.S. doesn't act? Uh, and then, it's, and then the, the Philippines giving the U.S. access to the bases, if they don't get anything in return, what's the value of the agreement? So I think it's, pre- it's pretty hard there. But the, on the second, of the, China has blocked supply, resupply to that shoal twice now. And then the second time, very noticeably, it was monitored by American aircraft, who, in, in, the, in the words of a journalist who was informed about it, swooped quite low to make it quite clear that the U.S. was observing uh, what was going on. The U.S. is playing a delicate game. It doesn't really want to go, you know, start a war over shoals. And I think we should point out, although we're talking about sovereignty, uh, what the Philippines is arguing before the arbitral tribunal and what any international lawyer will tell you, you can't claim sovereignty over shoals. Uh, they're, under, they're underwater features or the extensions of continental shelves. You can claim sovereignty over islands, as properly defined, and rocks with a limited area, but not shoals. And China, like with Mischief Reef, which isn't a territory, uh, has also uh, occupied it. So Second Thomas Shoal, where there's a beached LST, in a sense, uh, we'll see what the arbitral tribunal says, but international lawyers, it's, it's a submerged feature in the exclusive economic zone. Uh, you can't really claim sovereignty over it. And so all of the maneuvers around this it could all be symbolic. Right, but what's uh, you know, historical evidence has now shown that the 1947 Republic of China map was plagiarized from British Admiralty maps at the time. Some commission was set up uh, in the Republic of China that didn't have the wherewithal to investigate, was told, you know, Western powers are encroaching on China, seizing property, you know, uh, come up with a map that shows what's ours so we can begin to, to defend it legally, at least. And so they appropriated what was on the British Admiralty map, and we know it because all the mistakes in that map reappeared in the other ones. Then they had problems translating English terms into Chinese, and in some cases, uh, the mainland China has converted these into land features, so sandbanks begin to appear when they're sunken shoals. So there's, there's a real mess there uh, <laughs> about, about what is being claimed. And part of it could be solved. I mean, China says it's ours by historical rights. Well, that's an ambiguous term in international law. It only refers to territory inside the territorial seas. But no one is denying, and I wouldn't, uh, that China's Chinese fishermen have been in these waters uh, for years. And, and uh, the central problem there is the fishing stock, which everybody relies, is being depleted. The waters are being polluted overwhelmingly because of China. And if we just continue in this way, then there's a no-win situation. China may assert itself, but find it's depleted the stocks. And, and what's happened is that that's occurred from Hainan south. Chinese fishing fleets have had to go further and further afield, 
and then they bump up against now countries like Indonesia, which has reacted quite strongly recently, and Malaysia. So the Philippines is just the nearest stop. We are speaking with Carl Thayer, emeritus professor of the University of New South Wales. China's claims in the South China Sea are not new, and its actions to, actions to dislodge other countries from islands or reefs or or whatnot um, are also not new. So, for instance, China took over Mistress Reef from the Philippines in 1995, and I think you alluded to that earlier. And then before that had a couple of incidents where it used deadly force to take disputed islands from Vietnam. So, um, But the volume of complaints against China is certainly much higher now than previously. What is so different about China's efforts to assert its territorial claims now um, and why do players in the Asia region seem so much more alarmed than before? Well, one, uh, so, I mean, only in the last decade or so has China's rise led to <clears throat> rapid military modernization <clears throat> in the appearance of Chinese paramilitary vessels, and which are now the Coast Guard and, and military ships in the region. Uh, so in two, since about 2007, China initiated maritime enforcement rights patrols were quite aggressively, and it was uh, called the Eleven Dragons, a whole series of Chinese administrations, all with varying interest in the South China Sea, all reporting to different authorities, went out, sailed the seas, and pushed Chinese sovereignty. And that led to harassment, of particularly Vietnamese fishing uh, men, but the, the fatalities, ramming boats, seizing catches, holding hostages. It led China to cut uh, twice uh, cables of oil explorations in Vietnam's exclusive economic zone, and to chase off a vessel uh, in, in the Philippines' waters, and one Chinese military boat to shoot at, but not kill, uh, Filipino fishermen. So we had an escalating series of incidents, uh, fishermen, uh, China opposing resources, putting pressure on American oil companies not to invest in the region, uh, which the Obama administration had to deal with when it first came to office. So across the board, these maritime enforcement uh, uh, patrols generated friction. In addition, then the Chinese Navy, quite legally, quite properly under international law, has been using the high seas to demonstrate its power to go further and further from the near seas to the far seas, and that's caused individuals to worry. And then you fast forward to the global financial crisis, U.S. economy going backwards, and then the, the huge sequestration budget fights in Washington. Many regional states looking for a balance to China. They want to work with it economically, but prefer that China be a little more softly on the military side, look to the United States, and they have serious uh, reserves uh, and questions about the staying power of the U.S. Uh-huh. And uh, then we get what the situation now, which is lots of people complaining about China being a bully in the region and lots of people wondering if the U.S. is going to do anything about that. Um, from from China's point of view, it claims that it has not provoked uh, the recent crises involving territorial disputes with its neighbors. So, for instance, it points out that the Philippines arrested some Chinese fishermen fishing near the waters of Scarborough Shoal, and that was what led to the tense standoff um, in 2002. And Professor John Mearsheimer of the University of Chicago, another guest on our show, has written that China's smaller neighbors actually have every incentive to provoke China now before it becomes so strong, um, in fact, too strong for, you know, for Asian countries or the U.S. to, to really do anything about. Do, do you think countries... The smaller countries in Asia that have these disputes with China are, in fact, going out of their way to provoke China into some kind of an overreaction? 
Well, I love the realist thinkers <laughs> that, that let a good ideology get in the way of facts on the ground. Uh, for example, that Vietnam is not allied to the United States. And anything that Vietnam has done has been very low-key, called naval ex activities rather than exercises. And there's no incentive for Vietnam to provoke a larger neighbor. But what Vietnam has done is do what's called self-help, which John Mearsheimer understands, is building up its own military, taking delivery of kilo submarines from Russia, getting uh, anti-shipping cruise missiles, so it can defend itself. So Vietnam has not provoked uh, in the hope the U.S. will come to, to Vietnam. The U.S. has no treaty obligations to it. Now, the Aquino administration, when it came to office, was given a, a report on increased Chinese activities in Filipino waters. Now, the previous administration leaned very much towards China. And the Filipinos, uh, are, are, if there's one thing you can say about them, is that they are anti-China and anti-America if their sovereignty is affected. And there are even demonstrations, as we speak, going on in the Philippines against, right, the, basis, right. against the rotation. So, uh, and that does, in China, it's a China propaganda line. They're using legal warfare and propaganda to completely, to me, upset the facts on the ground or on the water. Uh, that how can the Philippines provoke? Scarborough Shoal lies within the Philippines' exclusive economic zones. And the Chinese uh, five fishing vessels that showed up there were in fact violating international conventions and Philippine law on the preservation of endangered species. And the Philippines made the mistake, uh, and I put that in quotation mark, of taking a former American Coast Guard cutter, rechristened as a naval vessel, hardly powerful, completely stripped of its weapons, basically, uh, to, to run the first patrol up there. They boarded and filmed and showed the, the endangered species, and also... Um, what countries do have in the exclusive economic zone is sovereign jurisdiction over the we resources. We have about 30 seconds left. So uh, Philippines tried to assert its sovereignty, and China actually put more muscle on the ground, and the Philippines had to back down. We'll have to leave it there. We've been chatting with Professor Carl Thayer, Director of uh, Thayer Consultancy and Emeritus Professor of the University of New South Wales, Canberra. Professor, thank you very much. Thank you, Yingma. Uh, this is China Takes Over the World, and I am Yingma. Good morning, this is China Takes Over the World, and I am Ying Ma. Conventional wisdom tells us that state-owned firms in China are bloated, inefficient bureaucracies that benefit from a huge swath of government subsidies and policies. Private Chinese firms, on the other hand, are supposedly much more competitive and innovative and tend to make it by their own merits rather than uh, with uh, the benefit of government favoritism. Wen Tongzheng, an assistant professor at the Levin College of Law at the University of Florida, says that this characterization is overly simplistic and that the between state-owned and privately-owned firms in China is not nearly as clear-cut. We are delighted that Professor Zheng is with us this morning. Wen Tong, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you very much, Ying. Uh, I'm glad to be um, you know, invited on your show and talk about my paper. Well, um, it's, great to, it's great to have you. Uh, as you said, you recently co-wrote a paper titled Beyond Ownership, State Capitalism, and the Chinese Firm, and it was released by the European Corporate Governance Institute. You argue in the paper that the standard dichotomy between state-owned and private firms in China simply breaks down. Uh, please tell us why. Um, our argument in, is that uh, in China, in terms of the relationship between the state and the firms, the formal ownership of the firms doesn't really matter as much as in societies where the boundary between the government and private property is relatively clearer. 
Um, so we argue that um, the state, the Chinese state, has actually less control of SOEs uh, and more control of uh, privately-owned firms than its ownership in those firms suggests. Um, so uh, we argue that uh, the Chinese state capitalism can be better explained by uh, capture of the state um, rather than by ownership. Uh, it really depends on which firms can capture the state and use it to their advantages. And, and in, in terms of capture of the state, you're referring to things like having close connections to state actors and agencies and accessing um, state largesse and um, having some kind of a role in carrying out the policies of the political party. Are those the things that you're referring to when you refer to capture? Exactly. So the the, the term capture, um, you know, uh, uh, has a metaphorical meaning. You know, um, so basically, you acquire a large enough significance um, to the state uh, that uh, the state has to take into account uh, your benefits uh, when it formulates its policies. Um, so, and this is primarily because of what we call the growth imperative in our paper. Uh, you know, the, the Chinese economy or, or the legitimacy of the Chinese government is primarily um, predicated on economic development right now. So if you can demonstrate your potential to the state uh, as a contributor to economic growth, um, then um, you primarily you have captured the state. So you acquire uh, a significance that cannot be ignored by the state. Um, so even if you are a private firm, uh, you get a massive amount of state benefits that way. What are some of the examples of these benefits that private firms also get from the state? Um, you know, a, a good example would be uh, Geely Automobile. That's uh, a large private automobile company based in Zhejiang province. Um, you know, uh, for several years in a row, that company um, has more than half of its net profits uh, come from government subsidies. And when Geely acquired uh, Volvo in 2010 for $1.5 billion, uh, a large percentage of that money comes from local governments. Um, you know, it, is, it, it was financed by local governments in China. Um, right, so, and, and, uh, there are, and, this is not, um, and this is not uncommon at all, right? There are other comp- private companies that get this type of um, help from the state all oh, the time. Oh, exactly. So this is very prevalent. Uh, there, there was a report um, uh, out, uh, I think, yesterday, uh, last year, um, showing that uh, the, the government subsidies for private firms are uh, very widespread, uh, and they, um, they, uh, they cover a large number of industries. Uh, yes, so that's not uh, uncommon at all. And, and these successful private firms um, that get all kinds of government subsidies, um, are they what have been commonly referred to as national champions in China? Uh, depending on the industries, um, you know, some of them, um, if they are in uh, what we consider uh, the strategic or sensitive industries, usually people refer to them as national champions. Uh, so, like, for example, Huawei. Uh, you know, many people refer to it as national champion. Uh, but, you know, in the non-strategic or sensitive sectors, uh, usually uh, people don't use that term. You know, in my view, the national champion term is uh, a pretty uh, loose term. It doesn't really have um, a, a well-defined meaning. 
Okay, and 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 in in your view, normally it's used on companies, um, successful private companies in in strategic industries. So Huawei's in in the telecom industry. Yeah,、um, exactly. But for a company like Geely, which is in the automobile industry, it、um, is it a term that's used on Geely, or is it just? Uh, you know, some people have used that term on GD, I think.、Um, but you know,、um, uh, I, I have seen you know other people not using that term. So GD might be in a gray area.、Um, you know, the other extreme uh, uh, case would be you know、uh, private firms in、uh, like let's say retail or, or grocery、uh, sectors. You know, those sectors are not considered to be、um, you know of national significance. Right, right,、so、right. Usually, those firms do not get the title of national champions. So GD is sort of in the middle, I would say. Right, and and what means of control does the Chinese government exercise on these private firms、um, that do benefit tremendously from state subsidies? Uh huh. Well, uh, there are many different means.、Um, you know, first of all,、uh, you know, China still has um, uh, you know、uh, the, the, the regulatory structure. Many industries are subject to regulation. So the government can still uh, uh, exert a lot of control over private firms、uh, through regulation, but even in sectors that、um, the government has、uh, retreated from,、uh, you know, the government has 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 disabandoned its regulatory apparatus.、Uh, you can still see the remnants of government regulation、uh, in the form of the so-called industrial. Uh,、um, uh, The, the, in the form of the so-called industrial associations or the chamber of commerce, you know, those are the quasi-government entities that are in charge of coordinating activities in a specific industry.、Um, and also,、uh, you know,、uh, the, the private firms get controlled by the government through the government subsidies. If you receive money from the government, you have to follow the the, the government's policies. And also,、uh, we argue in the paper、um, that. Um, you know, there is a phenomenon in China, what we call、uh, the, the politically connected entrepreneurs.、Um, if you look at the top Chinese private firms, a large percentage of them,、um, you know, they have their top executives that are part of the Chinese state political institutions, like National People's Congress,、uh, the, the China People's、uh, Political.、Uh, right, and so they're very what, politically connected. Yes, exactly. So according to our tally,、um, uh, out of the top 100 private firms, 95 of them, you know, have、uh, such political、uh, affiliations.、Um, so you know, through this way, the government can cover you know the, the private entrepreneurs,、um, you know, by by、uh, bringing them in to these state institutions, and also you know the government can、uh, exert their control on private firms just by using. What we call extra legal、uh, control, and、uh, those are the control measures that have no、uh, explicit legal basis.、Uh, for example,、um, you know, many government agencies in China they just、um, interview,、uh, or, or in Chinese it's called yue tan.、Uh, the, Chinese, the, the private firms when they see a need to inter- intervene. In the market, so、um, so some powerful government agency would send a representative to these private firms and interview them、um, about、yeah. practices that they would like to 
be created or enforced or changed, and and a lot of times private exactly. firms feel the need to act accordingly, right? Exactly. So they have to comply. Uh, you know, for example, NDRC uh, when it sees a need to uh, and, and that the NDRC stands for National uh, Development, Development Reform Commission, right? Exactly. Sorry. Uh, so so NDR, when NDRC sees a need to control the prices of food. Uh, you know, it will not uh, act through formal regulation. It will just call off the, uh, the 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 firms uh, and and tell them, you know, we need to control the prices. And uh, in most of the situations, the firms will comply. <laughs> uh, we are speaking with Professor Wen Tong Zheng of the University of Florida. Uh, well, what about um, the goods and services industry, which you alluded to earlier? Um, it's a, uh, you know, the, that industry is much more competitive, and 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 as you said earlier, it's not considered a strategic industry. Do private firms have more room to maneuver there in areas like retail and grocery, and are they less subject to state regulations and other intrusions in those areas? Oh, yes, you're right. Uh, we do think that in the non-strategic or the non-sensitive areas, uh, the government will have less reasons to intervene, even though it may have the power to intervene. So certainly, you know, from an operational point of view, the private firms in those sectors will certainly have a lot more room to maneuver. But with that said, we have to keep in mind that, you know, the ingredients for success um, in in the Chinese economy, which is heavily controlled by the government, is really to form a good relationship with the government, um, e- even if you are in those um, you know, uh, less strategic sectors. Uh, so you are not completely immune from the government, even if you are in those sectors. Do you get fewer subsidies in those sectors? Uh, you know, if you are large enough, uh, again, um, you know, if you are just a, a mom and dad shop, no one probably cares about right, you. Right, right. But if you are large enough and you, you hire a lot of employees and you contribute, um, you know, tax revenues to the local government, yeah, definitely you get subsidies uh, in various forms. Okay, well, let's talk about the small and medium-sized um, private firms. If the large, successful private firms share many of the characteristics of um, state-owned enterprises and and get many of the benefits. Then, um, then what actually happens to the smaller private firms that are in many ways the real engines of growth and sources of e- efficiency in the Chinese economy? Are are they pretty much left on their own? Uh, uh, at least initially, uh, yes. Uh, to a large extent, you know, they are the real engines of growth in the Chinese economy, uh, like uh, Huawei was, right? Uh, when it was uh, first uh, developing, uh, it was a, a small firm at the beginning, and it made techno- technological breakthroughs. And after that, it got uh, you know the government support uh, in various uh, forms. So those private firms, you need to demonstrate your potential to the state. Right? You, you, you either need to create new technology or you, you, you need to create new markets uh, so that you, you can show your value to the state. Um, so in that and, part, and once you show your value, then the state will probably dump well, some subsidies on you to help you grow bigger exactly, in order to, exactly. to help the economy grow overall. Um, yes. the, the World Bank's China 2030 report, which came out a couple of years ago and, and which was also cited in your paper, that report um, cited figures that said that one in four SOEs in China make a loss. Um, if the dichotomy between private and public firms is so blurred in China, as you said, how do we explain report after report like the one issued by the World Bank that keeps on telling us that um, SOEs generally underperform private companies? 
Um, oh yeah, yeah, that, that's a good point. Uh, you know, we're first of all, we're not really arguing in our paper that there are no differences between SOEs and private firms. Uh, there are differences. Uh, what we are saying in our paper is that in terms of the state firm relationship, uh, the difference um, that that stem uh, that, that uh, stem from ownership is really little. Um, so there are differences between SOEs and private firms, and we're not denying that. Um, but with that said, I, I do think the general uh, conclusion that SOEs tend to underperform uh, private firms need a, a caveat, which is, you know, we suffer from what we call an observation bias here. Um, you know, all of those SOEs on which we have data, you know, many of which um, wouldn't have existed had not um, had they not captured the state, right? You know, those loss-making SOEs, they probably would have closed. Uh, if they didn't have the state support. Right, uh, right, and, and right. I don't think that's, right, that's not questioned, I think. Yes, uh, but if you were a small private firm uh, and you don't get the government support, uh, when, you, um, when you make losses, you probably will close down. So you don't get um, uh, get tally, you, get, you don't get, uh, you, you don't make it into the data. So if you include all of the private firms that have, um, you know, existed, you know, either you're in operation right now and or, or, or you have um, failed, you know, maybe the picture would be different. I see. I see. OK, well, Wan Tong, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Ying. Nice talking to you. Yeah, likewise. That was uh, Professor Wan Tong Zhang, who uh, is an assistant professor of the Levin College of Law at the University of Florida. This is China Takes Over the World, and I am Ying Ma.